Hello humans, you are listening to the sensation of the moment. Be careful. If you are an ignorant person who will not expand your knowledge, then leave as soon as possible from here. What's going on guys? Welcome to the 15th episode of Cool Historians. Thank you so much for listening to my last episode about Boston Tea Party. And please, please, please don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Today we're going to talk about American Revolution or American War of Independence. Let's go make some history! The American Revolution, also called United States War or Independence or American Revolutionary War, was an uprising carried out by 13 Great Britain's colonies in North America, that it led to the formation of the United States of America. Before the war began, the relationship between the British Empire and its colonies seemed to have reached a breaking point. The war followed more than a decade of uh, growing estrangement between the British Crown and a large and influential segment of its North American colonies that was caused by British attempts to assert greater control over colonial affairs after having long adhered to a policy of solitary neglect. Until early in 1778, the conflict was a civil war within the British Empire. But afterward, it became an international war as France in 1778 and Spain in 1779 joined the colonies against Britain. Meanwhile, the Netherlands, which provided both official recognition of the United States and financial support for it, it was engaged in its own war against Britain. From the beginning, sea power was vital in determining the course of the war, leading to British strategy of flexibility that helped compensate for the comparatively uh, small numbers of troops sent to America and ultimately enabling the French to help break about the final British surrender at Yorktown. Let's talk about land campaigns to 1778. Americans fought the war on land with essentially two types of organization. The Continental, National Army and the State Militias. The total number of the former provided by quotas from the states throughout the conflict was 231,771 men. At any given time, however, the American forces seldom numbered over 20,000. In 1781, there were only about 29,000 insurgents under arms throughout the country. The war was therefore one fought by small field armies. Militias, poorly disciplined and with elected officers, were summoned for periods usually not exceeding three months. The terms of Continental Army service were only gradually increased from one to three years, and not even bounties and uh, the offer of land keep the army up to strength. R reason for difficulties in maintaining an adequate uh, continental force included the colonists' traditional antipathy toward regular armies, the objections of farmers to being away from their fields, the competition of the states with continental congress to keep men in the militia, and the rest and uncertain pay in period of inflation. By contrast, the British army was a reliable, steady force of professionals. Since it numbered only about 42,000, heavy recruiting programs were introduced. Many of the enlisted men were farm boys, as were most of the Americans. Others were unemployed persons from the urban slums. Still others joined the army to escape fines or prison. The officers were drawn largely from the gentry and aristocracy and obtained their commissions and promotions by purchase. Though they received no formal training, they were not so dependent on a book knowledge of military tactics as were many of the Americans. British generals, however, tended toward a lack of imagination and initiative, while those who demonstrated such qualities often were rushed. Because troops were few and conscription unknown, the British government, following a traditional policy, purchased about 30,000 troops from various German princes. The Lesgrave, Landgrave of Hesse furnished approximately three-fifths of that total. Few eggs by the crown rose so much antagonism in America as that use of foreign mercenaries. The colony of Massachusetts was seen by King George III and his ministers as the hotbed of disloyalty. After the Boston Tea Party, December 16, 1773, Parliament responded with intolerable acts on 1774, a series of punishment measures. 
1691 charter of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was abrogated, and the colony's elected ruling council was replaced with a military government under General Thomas Gage, the commander of all British troops in North America. At Gage's headquarters in Boston, he had four regiments, perhaps 4,000 men under his command, and Parliament deemed that force sufficient to overwave the population in his vicinity. William Leach, 2nd Earl of Dartmouth, Secretary of State for the Colonies, advised Gage that the violence committed by those who have taken up arms in Massachusetts have appeared to me as the act of rude rebel, without plan, without concert, without conduct. From London, Dartmouth concluded that uh, Gage for his part felt no fewer than 20,000 troops would be adequate for such an endeavor, but he acted with the forces he had at hand. Beginning in the late summer of 1774, Gage attempted to suppress the warlike preparations through New England by seizing stores of weapons and powder. Although the colonials were initially taken by surprise, they soon mobilized. Grabs such as Sons of Liberty uncovered advanced details of British actions and committees of correspondence aided in the organization of countermeasures. Learning of a British plan to secure the weapons cage at Fort William and Mary, an undermine army opposed in Portsmouth, New Hampshire's Boston Committee of Correspondence dispatched Paul River on December 13, 1774. To issue a warning to local allies, the following day several hundred men assembled and stormed the fort capturing the 6-man garrison, seizing a significant quantity of powder and striking the British colors. A subsequent party removed the remaining cannons and small arms. The act of over-violence against the Crown infuriated British officials, but their attempts to deprive the incipient rebellion of vital war material over the following months were increasingly frustrated by colonial leaders who denuded British supply catches and sequestered arms and ammunition in private homes. On April 14, 1775, Gage received a letter from Dartmouth informing him that Massachusetts had been declared to be in a state of open revolt and ordering him to arrest and imprison the principal actors and abettors in the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. Gage had received his orders, but the colonials were well aware of his intentions before he could act. On April 16, Riviera rode to Concord, a town miles 20 miles or 32 kilometers northwest of Boston to advise local compatriots to secure their military stores in advance of British troop movements. Two nights later, Riviere wrote from Charlestown, where he confirmed that the local Sons of Liberty had seen the two lanterns that were posted in Boston Old North Church, signaling a British approach across the Charles River, to warn that the British were on the march. Revolutionary leaders John Hancock and Samuel Adams fled to Lexington to safety, and the Riviere was joined by fellow riders William Dowis and Samuel Prescott. The trio were apprehended outside Lexington by a British patrol, but Prescott escaped custody and was able to continue on the Concord. Reverse Midnight Ride provided the colonists with vital information about British intentions, and it was later immortalized in the poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Some 700 British troops spent the evening of April 18, 1775, forming ranks on Boston Common with orders to seize the colonial armory at Concord. The lengthy public display ensured the Gage had lost any chance at secrecy, and by the time the force had been transported across the Charles River to Cambridge, it was 2 a.m. The march to Lexington was an exercise in misery. It began in a swamp and the British were forced to wade through breckish water that was in places waist deep. By the time the soaked infantrymen arrived in Lexington at approximately 5 a.m., 77 Minutemen were among those who had assembled on the village green. Officers on both sides ordered their men to hold their positions but not to fire their weapons. It is unclear who fired the shot heard around the world, but it sparked a scrimmage that left eight Americans dead. The colonial force evaporated and the British moved on to Concord, where they were met with a determined resistance from hundreds of militiamen. Now outnumbered and running low on ammunition, the British column was forced to retire to Boston. On the return march, American snipers took a deadly toll on the British, and only the timely arrival of 1,100 reinforcements prevented the retreat from becoming a road. The skilled and wounded at the battles of Lexington and Concord numbered 273 British and 95 Americans.
Rebel Militia then coverage from Boston from all over New England, while London attempted to formulate a response. Generals Sir William Howe, Sir Henry Clinton, and John Burgonia were dispatched at once with reinforcements, and Charles Cornwallis followed later. Thus, four commanders would be identified with the conduct of the principal British operations. The Continental Congress in Philadelphia, acting for the 13 colonies, voted for general defensive measures, called out troops, and appointed George Washington of Virginia commander-in-chief. Before Washington could take charge of the 15,000 colonial troops laying siege to the British garrison in Boston, Gage ordered Howe to drive the Americans from the heights in Charlestown. The Americans provoked the assault by entrenching on Brits Hill, the lower of two hills overlooking the British position. The placement of American artillery on the heights would have made the British position in Boston untenable, so on June 1775, Howe led a British frontal assault on the American fortifications. In the misleadingly named Battle of Bunker Hill, Brits Hill was the primary locus of combat, Howe's 2,300 troops encountered weathering fire while storming the rebel lines. The British eventually cleared the hill, but at the cost of more than 40% of the assault force, and the battle was a moral victory for the Americans. On July 3rd, Washington assumed command of the American forces at Cambridge. Not only did he have to contain the British in Boston, but he, he had also to recruit a continental army. And during the winter of 1775-1776, recruitment lacked so badly that the fresh drafts of militia were called up to help maintain the siege. The battle shifted in late winter when General Henry Knox arrived with artillery from Fort Ticonderoga in New York. The British fort, which occupied a strategic point between Lake George and Lake Champlain, had been surprised and taken on May 10, 1775 by the Green Mountains Boy, a Vermont militia group under the command of Colonel Ethan Allen. The cannons from Ticonderoga were mounted on Dorchester Heights above Boston. The guns forced Howie, who had replaced Gage in command in October 1775, to evacuate the city on March 17, 1776. Howe then repaired to Halifax to prepare for invasion of New York, and George Washington moved units southward for his defense. Meanwhile, action flared in the north. In the fall of 1775, the Americans invaded Canada. One force under General Richard Montgomery captured Montreal on November 13th. Another under Benedict Arnold made a remarkable march through the main wilderness to Quebec. Arnold was joined by Montgomery, many of whose troops had gone home because their enlistments had expired. An attack on the city on the last day of the year failed. Montgomery was killed and many troops were captured. The Americans maintained a siege of the city but withdrew with the arrival of British reinforcements in the spring. Pursued by the British and decimated by smallpox, the Americans fell back to Ticonderoga. British General Guy Carleton's hopes of moving quickly down Lake Champlain, however, were frustrated by Arnold's construction of a fighting field. Forced to build one of his own, Carleton destroyed most of the Americans' fleet in October 1776, but, but considered the seasons too advanced to bring Ticonderoga under siege. As the Americans suffered the defeat in Canada, so did the British in the south. North Carolina patriots trounced a body of loyalists at Morris Creek Bridge on February 27, 1776. Charleston, South Carolina was successfully defended against the British assault by sea in June. Having made up his mind to crush the rebellion, the British government sent General Howey and his brother Richard Amer Admiral Lord Howey with a large fleet and 34,000 British and German troops to New York. It also gave the Howeys a commission to treat with the Americans. The British force sailed on June 10, 1776 from Halifax to New York and on July 5th in Cape to Staten Island. Continental Congress, which had proclaimed the independence of the colonies, at first thought that Howeys were empowered to negotiate peace, but discovered that they were authorized only to accept submission and assure paradigms. Their PC force getting nowhere, the Howeys turned to force. George Washington, who had anticipated British designs, had already marched from Boston to New York and fortified the city, but his position was far from ideal. His left flank was thrown across the East River, beyond the village of Brooklyn, while the remainder of his illness fronted the Hudson River. 
while the remainder of his lines fronted the Hudson River, making them open to combined naval and ground attack. The position was untenable since the British absolutely dominated the waters above Manhattan. Howe drove Washington out of New York and forced the abandonment of the whole of Manhattan Island by employing three well-directed movements above the American left. On August 22, 1776, under his brother's gun, General Howe crossed the narrows of the Long Island shore with 15,000 troops, increasing the number to 20,000 on the 25th. He thus scored a special victory on August 27, driving the Americans into their Brooklyn works and inflicting a loss of about 1,400 men. Washington skillfully evacuated his army from Brooklyn to Manhattan that night under cover of a fog. On September 15th, Howe followed his victory by invading Manhattan. Though checked at Harlem Heights the next day, he drove Washington off the island in October by a move to Throg's Neck and then to New Rochelle, northeast of the city. Leaving garrison at Fort Washington on Manhattan and a fort lee on the opposite shore of the Hudson River, Washington hastened to block Howe. The British commander, however, defeated him on October 28th at Chattertown Hill near White Plains. Howe slipped between the American army and Fort Washington and stormed the fort on November 16th, seizing guns, supplies, and nearly 3,000 prisoners. British forces under Lord Cornwallis then took Fort Lee and on November 28th started to drive the American army across New Jersey. Though Washington escaped to the west bank of the Delaware River, his army nearly disappeared. Howe then put his army into winter quarters with outposts at towns such as Burtontown and Trenton. On Christmas night, Washington struck back with a brilliant riposte. Crossing the ice-thrown Delaware with 2,400 men, he fell upon the Hessian garrison at Trenton and downed the, and took nearly 1,000 prisoners. Though almost tried by Cornwallis who recovered Trenton on January 2, 1777, Washington made a skillful escape during the night, won a battle against British reinforcements at Princeton the next day, and went into winter quarters in the defensible area under Morristown. The Trenton Princeton campaign arose the country and saved the struggle for independence from collapse. Britain's strategy in 1777 aimed at driving a wedge between New England and other colonies. An army under General John Burgoyne was to march south from Canada and join forces with Howe and his Hudson. But Howe seems to have concluded that Burgoyne was strong enough to operate on his own and left New York in the summer, taking his army by sea to the head of Chesapeake Bay. Once ashore, he defeated Washington badly but not decisively at Brandywine Creek on September 11. Then, fainting westward, he entered Philadelphia, the American capital on September 25. George Washington struck back at Germantown on October 4 but compelled to withdraw went to winter quarters at Valley Fork. In the north, the story was different. Burgoyne was to move south to Albany with a force of about 9,000 British, Germans, Indians and American loyalists. A smaller force under Lieutenant Colonel Barry Sandlegger was to converge on Albany through the Mohawk Valley. Burgoyne took Ticonderoga handily on July 5th and then instead of using Lake George, chose a southward road by land. Slowed by the rock terrain, strong with trees cut down by American X-Men under Generals Philip Schuller and needing horses, Burgoyne sent a force of Germans to collect them at Bennington, Vermont. The Germans were nearly wiped out on August 16th by the New Englands under General John Stark and Colonel South Warner. Meanwhile, St. Ledger, Besieged Fort Schuyler, present-day Rome, New York, ambushed a relief column of American militia at Oriskany on August 6, but retreated as his Indians gave up the siege and the American force under Arnold approached. Burgoyne himself reached the Hudson, but the Americans now under General Horatio Gates checked him at Freesman Farm on September 19th, and thanks to Arnold's battlefield leadership, they chiselly defeated him at Bames Heights on October 7th. Ten days later, Unable to get help from New York, Burgoyne surrendered at Saratoga. The most significant result of Burgoyne's capitulation was the entrance of France into the war. We all know the rivalry between France and England. 
the French had secretly furnished financial and material aid since 1776. Now they prepared fleets and armies, although they did not formally declare war until June 1778. What happens next? We're gonna talk about this in the part 2 that's gonna come soon. This was the episode of the today that it was like an explanation of all the American Revolution. The next episode we're gonna talk how it ends and the aftermath of this war. Thank you so much for listening, stay tuned and see you in the next episode.